So the reading this morning is from Galatians 5, verses 16 to 25. If you don't have a Bible with you and like to follow along, there are some at the back of the ground floor, and there, I believe there's some upstairs in the balcony as well. So Galatians 5, verses 16 to 25. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Katrina. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word. Thank you that you know everything about every single one of us, all that we've brought into this place, all that we're going back into this week. And we pray, Father, that we might hear your voice speaking to us, that by your Holy Spirit, you might speak and apply your word to each of our lives, that the person of Christ might be formed more fully in each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're continuing our series looking at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to begin maybe on dangerous territory. Okay, I'm just going to put that out there. But what comes to mind for you when you think of the Celtic nations? Okay, so these are the Celtic nations, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, uh, and then uh, Brittany, Cornwall, people in the Basque region. They're traditionally known now as the Celtic nations. Now, I know for an Englishman, this is dodgy territory to ask a group, mainly of Scots, what you think of when you think of the Celtic nations. Um, but I've lived here 26 years. My full name is David Gareth Richards, so I think I've got some qualifications. One academic identified these traits that Celtic folk share. A passionate love of their nation, wonderful poetry and inspiring music, a mistrust of governmental authority, and a readiness to fight anywhere and everywhere. And you see it on the rugby pitch, you see it on the football field, you see it in the House of Commons, you even see it occasionally in the American Senate. You see it in Dublin, in Glasgow, in Cardiff, in Cornwall or Brittany, or in the pages of the books that featured Asterix the Gaul. There is something about the Celtic people that share some characteristics. But they also share, or we also share, a deep spirituality 
a love of creation. One of the features of Celtic Christianity is the use and resonance with God's care for and our stewardship of creation. There are lots of great things in Celtic Christianity. There's lots of romantic nonsense talked about as well. But the one thing that's common also in terms of a weakness is that as you look back through the history of the church in Scotland or Wales or Ireland, Celtic Christians have a sort of natural default towards legalism, to want to impose rules on people, rules that keep some people out and keep some people in. And these, well, and, and people used to joke when I first arrived at St. Paul's and St. George's, P's and G's, that actually the P's and G's stood for pressure and guilt. <laughs> Hopefully that's not the case uh, anymore. Now, these national stereotypes, you see them expressed in popular culture. So for those of us who are old enough, the sort of stereotypical Scot was Fraser in Dad's Army saying, we're doomed, and apparently he even made it onto it. That's a stamp. The Royal Mail actually commissioned a stamp, and that was their national stereotype of the Scots, we're doomed. There's a sort of natural melancholy as we, you know, exist in 17-degree heat while London has 32 degrees. There's a natural melancholy of shared suffering, and why don't we have the sun and the summer that people down south do? Or if you watch the film Happy Feet, uh, there's a reason why the elder penguins who are right at the back in this, this picture, they're, they're sort of portrayed as Presbyterian penguins. And when Mumble, this little penguin who can't uh, uh, sing, because penguins, all penguins sing, we know that, right, if you've watched the film, he can't sing, but he can dance. And the elder Presbyterian penguins, uh, they call him before them and they say, we're no supposed to dance. And there's a reason why people who create uh, cartoons and television and, and film often portray people from the Celtic nations in this way because there is a cultural resonance. There is some truth. Legalism often seems a default of people in churches in Wales, in Ireland, and if we're honest, here in Scotland too. And it was here in that church that the Apostle Paul wrote to in Galatia. Now, Galatia was an area in modern-day Turkey known as Asia Minor. But the people who lived there were Gauls. That's why it was Galatia. And they moved across, went west, and went into France and Cornwall and Brittany and Wales and uh, Scotland and Ireland, and they now all have holiday homes back uh, in Turkey. And Paul wrote to this church to rescue them from the legalism that they were tending to slip back into. If you read the Acts of the Apostles, you see how these churches began in places like Pisidian Antioch and Lystra and Iconium and Derbe. They were predominantly converts from Judaism who, together with uh, Gentile, non-Jewish people, decided that Jesus was the Messiah and they were going to commit their lives to believing in him and following him. And these churches that Paul had founded had started really well. But then some Jewish Christians had come along from Jerusalem 
And they said in order to be a real Christian, you had to observe the Jewish law. You had to get circumcised if you were a male. And you had to become Jewish and then follow Christ in order to be a real Christian. And that's why Paul wrote this letter. And so you see there in chapter 1, Paul says, I am astonished in Galatians 1 that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He doesn't mince his words. At the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You started off so well, and now you're starting to observe and keep the Jewish law. And the letter is basically two things. It's Paul setting out his Jewish credentials and saying that he was a Jew amongst Jew, a member of the Sanhedrin, member of the Jewish ruling class, and how he'd come to the point of meeting Jesus and seeing that in Jesus all the law had been fulfilled and now we lived under grace rather than law. And here was this church of Gauls, of Celts, in danger of slipping back into legalism, into do's and don'ts and rules and laws. And Paul says, it's not about that. And his, his aim in chapter 4 and verse 20, he says, is that he is praying until Christ is formed in you. That was Paul's aim for every single church. That's God's aim for every single church. That the person and character of Jesus Christ himself is formed in us. Paul expresses it in different ways to different churches. To the Ephesians, he writes, I pray that you might be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. To the church in Philippi, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. To the Colossians, he says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. To the Galatians, he says, I'm praying until Christ is formed in you. And then later on in that Bible reading that we had read from chapter 5, he lists what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Now, I've been a follower of Jesus Christ for 44 years. Became a Christian when I was 17. I've worked for three churches and a couple of Christian organizations. And there is nothing sadder for me than being around people who have been in church for 20 or 30 or 40 or even 50 years and the person of Christ is no more formed in them now than it was when they first began. I've also been around and had the privilege of being around Christians who have walked with Jesus for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years and the more they live on this planet, the more they become like the person of Jesus. And they're deeply inspiring and humbling people to be around. Dallas Willard, who is a writer on Christianity and spirituality, taught many people really helpful stuff. 
he famously observed that particularly in the evangelical church, of which we're a part, he said that we have often reduced Christianity to a gospel of sin management with the basic entry-level requirements for heaven. Now, I used to work as an evangelist, and I think he's actually right. You know, whether it was Billy Graham, or Billy Graham did a lot more things as, as well, but somehow we've got this idea that becoming a Christian is just getting over the line, and then some people get the idea that God almost says, well, off you go, do your best, and I'll see you on the other side. And it might be 20, 30, 40, 50, or 60 years, but somehow we've just got to muddle through. Go to church, pray, read the Bible, read the right books, go to the right conferences, sing the right songs, sing the right hymns, and somehow we'll make it to heaven. That is not why Jesus came. That is not life in all its fullness. That's not abundant life. That's not the life of God living in and through somebody. Rich Viadas is the lead pastor of a church in Queens, New York, and he's just written this book uh, called The Deeply Formed Life, and that's a, a workbook that goes with it. And uh, Viadas is an, one of a number of American pastors of evangelical churches who are, are starting to encounter spiritual disciplines, uh, more sort of Catholic, mystical spirituality, because they realize that their evangelical spirituality just isn't feeding them and cutting it anymore. And it's his observation that as you look at different traditions in the church, there are strengths to each of them, but each of them can have an unhelpful emphasis on the external rather than the internal. So, for example, his observation is that on the conservative tradition, the more evangelical fundamentalist uh, wing of the church, um, I used to work for UCCF, so I'm familiar with that part of the church. And he says in that part of the church, transformation or sanctification, to use the theological term, is about getting the right theology into people's heads, but often the inner work is overlooked. And that's the conservative evangelical tradition. If you read the right books, you will think the right way. If you think the right way, you will live the right way. It's actually more influenced by the Enlightenment rather than Scripture. Secondly, Viadas said there's the progressive tradition. And in the progressive tradition that we see in people like Shane Claiborne and social justice advocates, transformation is about engagement with society in the right way for the right reasons. It's about right action in society, but again, often at the expense of personal inner transformation and change. So we want to change the world, but we don't want God to change us. Viedas notes that in the third tradition, the Pentecostal or charismatic tradition, transformation is often seen as having the right experience. So as long as you're prayed for in the right way, at the right conference, with the right worship songs going on around you, and you have a particular experience, that's what counts. But again, it misses out the inner work. 
Now, there are strengths and truths in all three traditions, conservative, progressive, and Pentecostal and charismatic. We need good theology to help shape our thinking. We need to engage with the world in the right way and not be personal private pietists. And we need experiences in the tangible presence of God's Spirit at work in our lives individually and corporately. But the weakness is that we emphasize one of them to the exclusion and the omission of what God actually wants to do in our inner beings, to our souls, to our spirits, to our character, and what's going on inside. That's why Paul says to this church, I'm praying that Christ is formed in you. It's not enough that Christ dwells in you, but the person and character of Jesus Christ, the whole point of discipleship, or what we call here at Peace and G's whole life discipleship, is that the person and character of Jesus Christ is formed more fully in each of us every single day. And the test is, are you, am I, more like Jesus today than I was on Friday, or I was a month ago, or I was a year ago, or I was 10 years ago? He wants to see Christ formed in them. And in this passage that Katrina read for us, he's saying to the church in Galatia, you're free from the law, but that doesn't mean that you're free to do what you want. It doesn't mean that you're free to live however you want because Christ has fulfilled the law. You are now, Paul says, free to love. We're saved by grace, not obedience to the law. So doing the right things, living the right way, doesn't earn God's approval or God's love. We are loved, and because we know that we're loved and accepted and forgiven, that sets us free to live the lives that God wants us to live. And Paul describes it in verse 13 to 15. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So he's saying you're free to do whatever you want on one level, but because you're forgiven, because you've been accepted, you are now to live the lives that God wants you to live. And what that looks like is a life of humble service to each other. And it begins in the church, and if you like, the church is the laboratory where we get to experiment and practice for how God wants us to live out in the world. Basically, if you can love fellow Christians, you can love anybody, is what he's trying to say. But it's about the character of Christ being formed more fully in us. But how do you and I live the lives that God wants us to live? How can I live a life of humble service? That's not my natural inclination. 
Ask my wife. It, just, it isn't who I am. Even though I've been a Christian for 44 years, it's not my natural inclination. I don't bounce out of bed in the morning. I don't bounce out of bed in the morning full stop. But I don't bounce out of bed and think, how can I lead a life of humble service today? That's not my immediate thought. I need some coffee first. But it's not my natural inclination. How am I going to do that? How are you going to do that? The clue comes in what Paul says next. He says to them, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desired what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And Paul is saying there is only one way that you and I can live the lives that God wants us to live, as the power of the Holy Spirit lives in us. And he uses this metaphor of walk by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. It occurs again and again. Some people translate it as live in the Spirit, but the metaphor is walk in the Spirit. And the idea is not about speed. The idea is about progress. That you are moving forward, walking in the Spirit, and you're advancing, and you're making progress every single day as you live by the Spirit, as the Spirit of God, the power of God, that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the Spirit of Jesus lives in you and works through you. That is the only way that you and I can lead and live the lives that God wants us to live. We looked at Romans chapter 8 last week with Libby, and again, Paul says the same thing there. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit living in you. When you become a Christian, you know you're a Christian because you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside you. But you cannot then live the life that God wants you to live as a Christian unless you are walking in the Spirit. Ivy will not be able to live the life that God wants her to live unless the Spirit of God lives in her and through her. We can pray. Parents can pray. The rest of the family can pray. But Ivy will need to come to a point where she asks Jesus to come into her life and the Spirit of God lives and works in her. Some of you know that I've just spent two days in Romania uh, with a group of church leaders seeing the response of world vision to the crisis in Ukraine. And we were in Bucharest for two days, and one of the things that we went to was a refugee hub in the Expo Center. Think of the EICC, the Convention Center, turned over to a refugee center. That's where we were on Friday afternoon. Prince Charles was there a couple of weeks ago. And in this hub, there's a, there's a clothes store, there's a food store where people from Ukraine can come and choose clothes, they can come and get food, they can come and get vouchers for local shops, and the United Nations and World Vision and the Salvation Army and UNESCO are working together with Bucharest City Council to provide relief for 2,000 refugees out of the 80,000 that are in Bucharest. Six and a half million people now displaced from Ukraine. Two-thirds of Ukraine's children are no longer in Ukraine. It was quite sobering and quite humbling, and there were some tears shed, mainly by me, 
on Friday. As we visited um, different places where World Vision are working, together with their NGOs, creating places where children can come and play. One of the groups that we met, were, they were a football team of nine and ten-year-olds. Some of you have children who are age nine or ten, and they belong to football clubs. Think about your kids' football team of ten kids being displaced three hours flight time away, hundreds of miles away from home, being plonked in a hotel with a mum, and playing tour games against local teams in Bucharest. That's the situation that these kids were in. And when we went to the refugee hub, we talked to the person who is from Zimbabwe, who's working with the Salvation Army, that were working in conjunction with World Vision. And we simply said, as Christian organizations, do you ever get together to pray? And the woman looked at us as though we were stupid. And she simply said this, of course we pray. Without him, we are nothing. And it's an amazing international effort of response. But for the Salvation Army and for World Vision, they know that they need to rely upon the work and the person of the Holy Spirit every single day for the work that they're doing. We can't do anything without him, because without him, we're nothing. Some people have problems with this whole language around being filled with the Spirit. Remember in another church that I worked for, a really good friend called Roger who worked for a Christian organization with students. And he came from a more conservative background. And he said, why do you keep on talking about being filled with the Spirit? Why do I need to be filled with the Spirit? Because when I became a Christian, I received the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, Roger, I need to talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit for two reasons. One, I leak. Spurgeon said that first. It wasn't me. And secondly, because that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, be filled with the Spirit. And that the tense of the original Greek is, is, a, is a continuous tense. The literal translation of Ephesians 5.18 is, go on be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's a present continuous and what Paul is saying is every day you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Another way that I, I tried to explain it to Roger was, was this. Um, when Kathy and I got married 34 years ago, we loved each other on our wedding day. So on that side, just in case you can't distinguish the two, that's us getting married uh, on the right-hand side. Um, looking very dapper there in my uh, long frock coat and top hat. Had a sort of Fred Astaire vibe to it. Never put the hat on during the entire day. And there we are a couple of months ago in Nurka in southern Spain. Now, when Kathy and I got married 34 years ago, we loved each other. 34 years later, we still love each other. And we love each other more deeply now than when we got married 34 years ago. Now, does that mean that we loved each other less on the day we got married? No. We loved each other then and we love each other now. In the same way you received the Holy Spirit when you became a Christian, 
you still need the Holy Spirit now and more of the Holy Spirit than you did 34 minutes ago or 34 days ago or 34 years ago because it's a relationship. That's again the sort of unique feature of the Christian faith is that we're called into a relationship. The Godhead is three persons and we grow in our relationship and we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we grow as Christians, the Spirit fills us more, and we become more like Christ as He is formed in us. And our character grows more like Jesus as the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, works in us and fills us. So it's not primarily about spiritual experiences or theological knowledge, important though those things are. But interestingly, in this passage and in Ephesians 5, Paul says that the test of knowing whether you are filled with the Spirit is not an amazing prayer life. It's not an incredible encyclopedic knowledge of Scripture. It's not going to church more often. But you know that somebody is filled with the Spirit because you see it in their relationships. So in Ephesians 5... It's about mutual submission in a marriage relationship. That follows straight on from B, go on B, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's almost as if as an example of that, Paul says, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And here in Galatians, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, live in the Spirit. And how do you know you're living in the Spirit and walking with the Spirit? Because... You can, your relationships are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And just as in Romans chapter 8, the passage that we looked at last week, he contrasts between two things, the flesh and the spirit. He says they're at war with each other, and he gives examples of unhealthy and dysfunctional uh, lifestyles in terms of sex and false worship and dysfunctional relationships. And he says it's obvious that people living like this don't belong to the kingdom of God. But the opposite is, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, these are personal, but they're not individualistic. Paul is writing to a church community and what he's saying is that the relationships in a church should be characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Because if you can do it in church, you might stand a chance of doing it outside. If you can love other Christians, because God tells us that we have to forgive one another, and we're going to be in eternity with one another, you might stand a chance of living like that out in the world. How does it happen? Well, Paul says it happens as you do two things. Firstly, he says, as you crucify, as you put to death every day the flesh with its passions and desires. And maybe this morning that's a word for somebody here. You've got into a habit, a way of living, a way of thinking, a way of behaving, 
And actually, the first thing that needs to happen is you need to put it to death. You need to stop it. And you need to crucify it. Crucifixion was public and it was permanent. It was deliberate. And somebody may be here this morning, you need to put it to death. It might be pornography. It might be a wondering about an affair. It might be something that you're thinking of doing or a habit that you've got into, a lifestyle choice, and you need to put it to death. You need to crucify it. And in order to help you, you're given the power of God to enable you to do it. But it's only going to help, only happen as you will it and decide that it's going to happen. And then you need to pray that God would fill you afresh with the Holy Spirit. That you might be characterized by more love, by more joy, by more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, by more self-control. When you're driving the car, more patience. If your kids were to ask, be asked, can you tell if, if you've got kids, can you tell that mum or dad is a Christian when they're driving the car? What would they say? Because that's one of the tests. When they're in the queue at Asda or Sainsbury's, how Christian are mum and dad? When they talk about that difficult person at work, would you know that mum or dad belong to Jesus? Let's pray together. And if you're able, would you please stand? And just in the silence, just want to leave a time for you to reflect. What do you need to crucify or put to death in your life? It might be in the area of sex or relationships. It might be ambition or jealousy. Too much alcohol. Too much anger. And where do you need the Spirit of God to work in your relationships afresh? Where do you need to be a kinder person, more loving, more patient in the workplace? With that difficult colleague who really annoys you, or that difficult colleague where unbeknownst to you, you really annoy them. Father, we echo the words of that Salvation Army leader from Zimbabwe who's working in Romania. Without you, we can do nothing. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come, to enable us to put to flesh those things that need to die in our lives, that habit, that repeating pattern of sin, and then, Lord, we're asking that as your Spirit comes now afresh into this place, as he's come for hundreds of years, 
that you would come afresh now and that you might bring what we need to live the lives you're calling us to live. More love, more joy, more patience, more peace, more kindness, more gentleness, more self-control, perhaps as a parent, as a grandparent, as a friend, as a colleague. Holy Spirit, would you form the person of Christ more fully in us? In his name we pray. Amen.